The last class of my old professor's life took place once a week in his house by a window in the study where he could watch a small hibiscus plant shed its pink leaves. The class met on Tuesdays. It began after breakfast. The subject was the meaning of life. It was taught from experience. No books were required, yet many topics were covered, including love, work, community, family, aging, forgiveness, and finally, death. The last lecture was brief, only a few words. A funeral was held in lieu of graduation. The last class of my old professor's life had only one student. I was the student. And we welcome you to this edition of Tuesday People. I'm your host, Mitch Album. I'm the author of the book, Tuesdays with Maury. This podcast is a celebration of the themes that were explored in that book and during those visits with my old professor 25 years ago, believe it or not, and they still resonate so strongly today. And today is a is a celebration of sorts for us uh, here at the Tuesday People podcast. And boy, in this day of uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, anything that passes as a celebration, you're going to do. If we're, <laughs> if we're considering Sunday nights because we got to watch The Last Dance as a celebration of a Michael Jordan documentary, then you can pretty much invent any holiday you want. But for us, uh, Lisa and I are very proud because uh, this is our 30th podcast. And I have to say that uh, Lisa Goitsch is alongside, of course, I should have introduced you, or <laughs> my friend and producer for this podcast, and the woo-hooer in the background. Uh, <laughs> but when I first uh, came up with the idea of doing this as a podcast after being asked so many times by people, you know, can what can you share about the Tuesdays with more experience? Can I talk to you about the Tuesdays with more experience? And now I'm seeing so many people, Lisa, who are sending me, because you can you know, you get tagged in social media, and any time you get mentioned in Twitter or Instagram or whatever, you end up seeing it, whether you're asking to see it or not, it, it comes right. to you. And I am seeing so many people who are talking to one another, not really talking to me, but they're talking to one another, and they're saying, what are you reading during this time for comfort? What are you reading to escape or, or to make things easier during the whole COVID-19 thing? And I get mm-hmm. endless, endless copies of correspondence around the world in, in languages sometimes I don't understand. The only thing I understand is Tuesdays with Maury, Mitch Album. Oh. I don't understand. Esto, tato, bita, You know, or sometimes they're in, 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 in characters that I can't even, I can't even read, but I recognize my name sort of spelled a little oddly. And they're sharing this book. They're sharing these lessons. So when I thought, well, it would be nice to sort of talk to people around the world, share Maury's voice as we have, and have a chance to uh, verbally connect with people, it was a bit of a gamble. You know, I wasn't sure if it was going to work or not. You never know with the podcast. And we're very happy to have reached our 30th podcast. And Lisa, you've been great in this process. And Lisa, everybody should know, is the person who sort of organizes everything and gets the topics together. And after the podcast is recorded, gets it all into shape and and, and gussies it up and makes it nice and neat so that you can understand it <laughs> and hear it and the music and all that. A, a much harder job than I have. I'm, I do a lot of talking. Lisa does talking and ah. all this other work. So she deserves a lot of credit for the ultimate uh, product that you end up getting uh, every Tuesday. Thank you. And Lisa also collects our mail. 
And and when I say male, yes, I'm showing my age, uh, referring to it as male, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Correspondence from all different forms, be they actual letters, be they phone messages, be they emails, be they comments on our page, et cetera. And so what we thought we would do to mark the 30th show is to take uh, some of your suggestions that Lisa put out a sort of a fishnet out there and said, uh, what would you like us to discuss on the 30th show? And we got back some uh, very interesting suggestions, and we're going to bounce through them and share uh, what I have to share on those particular topics. So we're going to make this show really your show, uh, all of you who are listening to us, and particularly some of you being represented by those who have written in and asked us to discuss certain subjects. So let us jump into uh, a couple of them here. Uh, I think one of the first ones that I want to deal with comes from a listener named Ellen, actually Ellen Pelligian, who's someone I've known uh, for, for a number of years, and I'm glad to see that she's listening to this podcast. And she raises the question of, did you discuss caregiving? It's challenging, but a huge act of love, and I think an obligation for those we love who loved and raised us. This is a really, really good topic, and we'll do it. Yes. We'll do it in the future uh, in a much longer fashion, and we'll probably do multiple episodes on it. But I, I do think that it's critical to talk about caregiving because many of us are finding that we have now become parents to our children. And I know, Lisa, in your case, and I know in my case, with both of my parents are, are now passed on, but in both of their cases, they were, um, they were limited in their final years and very limited. Both of my parents were stroke victims and severely uh, so and wheelchair bound. And we went from the days where they used to take us in the back seat of the car out to uh, some little restaurant where we would have a hamburger or something and think it was the greatest right. thing in the world, to us, when I say us, I also mean my brother and my sister, and their caregivers, uh, taking the two of them in wheelchairs, then helping them into the back of the car, then folding up the wheelchairs, then sliding the wheelchairs, making room for them in the trunk of the car, and and then closing the doors and making sure that everybody was okay, and just to go a mile to go to some right. nearby restaurant where we'd open the trunk, take out the wheelchairs, open up the wheelchairs, pull them out of the car, leaning up against us on our bodies, or the caregivers doing the same thing, put them into the chair, get them configured, get them comfortable just to wheel into a restaurant to have a version of the hamburger. The hamburgers, yes, yeah. right. <laughs> uh, and so it's so interesting to see how life has, has flipped over. And Lisa, I know that you took uh, such good care of your mother. You wrote a wonderful book about it. And and it, it I think caregiving and the choice to caregive, particularly for our parents or our elderly loved ones in our family, is a defining moment in who you are going to choose to be in life. You know, there are those those critical moments. Are you going to be a married person or are you going to be single? Are you going to be a parent or you're not going to have kids? Uh, are you going to be a giving member of your community or are you just going to get for yourself? There are all these different moments that sort of define who you are. And I think that one never gets enough credit. 
There are people who spend, gosh, Lisa, I've seen five, ten years of their oh, lives. Oh, yeah, easily. Yeah, I have easily. friends who have done, who have had parents with dementia for 12 years. Right. And they care for them every day. And it's difficult. It's so hard. You right. know, I mean, in my case, I went through it for only two weeks. And so I feel like I'm not well, even worthy of talking about it when I see what some people go through. But it's really commendable. They quit jobs. They quit careers. They have to put their lives on hold to take care right. of these people. And very frequently, and the pressure of doing it enters into their personal lives. It can become a wedge between spouses. Why are you spending mm -hmm. so much time with your mother? What about us? You know, well, but this is my mother. This is my father. What am I supposed to do? It's, it's a terrible uh, y yanking between obligations. And yet it is an obligation. And yes, uh, as, as Ellen pointed out in her note, you know, an obligation to those we love who loved and raised us. And I always would say, if someone asked me, you know, why are you spending so much time going out? My parents at that point were in California. I would have to fly out just to be with them. Why are you doing that? And I would say, well, I wonder if someone would have asked my mother or my father when I was five or six and they were leaving whatever it was because I was throwing up and asked, why are you going home to your six-year-old? You know, we're out, right. we're doing things. What are you doing that for? There was never any question, right? So if there was never any question for what they did for us, why is it that there are so many questions of what we should do for them? And I think that those who make that leap and make that sacrifice are doing an amazing thing. Maury said that there is no security in the world like your family. And you can look for it in other things. And he very specifically uh, referenced friends and colleagues. And he said, but those people will not be there for you in these moments. And here was Maury needing to be wiped, have his nose blown, carried from place to place. Uh, you know, his, his urine collected, carried to the toilet. He needed everything done for him. And he said to me, my friends, distant friends, colleagues, people I used to work with right. as much as I like, they're not coming here to do that. And I would be a fool to expect them to come here and do that. It's the family that you're going to rely on, or in many cases, it's the caregivers who get hired to help out, who end up doing those most personal things. And yep. so uh, I take my hat off to anyone who has in their family is a caregiver for a loved one. And it is a, an absolute travesty that in many states you cannot get credit for that time or uh, you know money allowed for that time because you're taking off from work. In order to right. do it. Now, there have been some states that would allow that in the case of uh, we had a bill here in um, in Michigan for many, many years that allowed people who were taking care of severely injured auto crash victims uh, that they had up to a certain amount of hours that they could put in as as caregiver hours and get, you know, credit for that, either on their taxes. Right. I don't want to get deep into it because I don't know the specifics, but either on their taxes or or they could earn that money or it would be paid from this fund, you know, through insurance. Insurance would, would be allowed to pay them. And then they changed it and they cut it all out. 
And and so now those same people who were at least getting some kind of compensation for all the hours that they were putting in taking care of their loved ones now have to do it all for free and work elsewhere to try to earn that or hire somebody else to do it. So I think that that should be a national policy. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I was going to be doing a speech about this, but then the pandemic hit. I was going to speak at um, Cleveland Clinic about women in particular and caregiving who um, account for about 60 percent of all caregivers uh, in non-professional roles. Okay, so when these women try to get back into the workforce, one of the big problems is, too, is that if they're gone for five years from the workforce, they're unable to get back in because they don't get professional credits for the stuff that they've done, which really ranges from everything when you think about it to psychology, uh, you know, I mean, pharmaceutical reps. I mean, the people who take care of people have so many budgeting, uh, so many, you learn so many things and you have so many skills that go into that job that, that become nothing when you go to send a resume out. They see that employers see that as spending five years at home, which is a darn shame. And I wish we could really encourage employers to see this as, wow, look what you did. Sure, we'll welcome you in. Well, what better character reference could you have than someone took time away from their career to take care of someone yeah. who took care of them, let alone, as yeah, you point selflessly. out, all the skills all the skills that are actually required, because you're right. There's money management, there's time management, there's the physical stuff. You have to learn to be a doctor uh, on many cases. Yeah. You have to learn through how to wade through red tape. So for all the uh, caregivers who, who, are, who are out there who are doing this, Maury would never have um, had the experience of the last two years of his life when he was afflicted with ALS, had it not been for the quality of care that he got. And, you know, there are a lot of levels of doing this, folks. You may not feel like you're capable of wiping your father's rear end or taking care of uh, their uh, you know, urinary needs or things that might be too embarrassing for you or it makes you uncomfortable. But don't think of yourself as a failure because you can't do that. There is much, much more that you can do. It might be the simple acts of of, of playing cards. It might be the simple act of, of uh, keeping up the conversation and just being there for them. And so if you need a nurse uh, or a healthcare worker to do some of the more physical stuff that perhaps you don't feel capable of or you don't feel comfortable doing, that doesn't mean that you're a bad son or a bad daughter. If you stay there and you hold their hand, if they're cognizant, you talk to them, you keep the memories going, you stimulate them, you put in the time, that is caregiving. That is caregiving. Mm-hmm. Not everything in caregiving involves a beaker or a or a medicine bottle or an injection or something like that. And there are many, many levels of caregiving, but they all require one thing, time. Time. Yep. And uh, giving of your time is the most precious thing you can give. I wrote this in Finding Chica uh, because when it's one thing you can't get back. You know, and uh, it's not like you. Uh, I'll get it back later. I'll lend you money, but I'll get the money paid back. No, when you give someone your time, you don't get your time back. But when you give it in love, then, and you don't want it back, then you have given it the right way. And uh, you know, people who care for their parents or their elderly loved ones are doing that. So we'll do another uh, segment, full show on caregiving. But that's a really important one. Thank you, Ellen, for that suggestion. 
on Oops! The Podcast. Join me, comedian Julio Gallerati, as I examine everyday life, the mistakes, the bad decisions, the goals, the jokes, the social engagements, and all things in between. I'm joined every week by producer and personal confidant, Ryan Lynch, various other comedians for witty, candid, and intoxicating conversation. Our listeners love Oops! for sophisticated banter, aka your mom could listen, and many feel like they're in the room with us chopping it up with old pals. You can find every episode of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Another one comes from uh, Brian Wayne Galantine is his uh, name, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, or Tyne, Galantine. Uh, and a, a simple question, have you covered ALS yet? As in how there's still no cure nearly 25 years post Maury's passing. May is ALS Awareness Month. So, of course, we cover ALS in some shape or form in every episode because I talk about mm-hmm. how Maury, uh, what he had to deal with along the way. But we've not dedicated an entire episode to it, and that'll be another thing that we'll do in the future. But somebody wrote a pretty astounding post. It really made me think, uh, and it was probably at the start of ALS month, May, and it was written by an ALS patient. And this person was likening the complaints that they were hearing during COVID-19 to their experience as an ALS patient. And so we're saying, wow, I'm hearing people say, you know, this is terrible. I'm inside and I can't go anywhere. Oh, boy. Which, of course, is what an ALS patient has to deal with. Uh, Boy, I'm uncertain about what's going to happen in the future with my health. An ALS patient has to deal with. I I can't go outside and do the things that I normally do uh, without fear of danger or something happening to me every moment for an ALS patient. You know, I'm limited on the things I can eat now, and uh, I can't get go go to a restaurant. Restaurants aren't there. ALS patients can't get into restaurants because of the requirements of the wheelchairs and the things that they're in, there isn't space or room for it. Right. Gee, I really miss flying on planes, you know, and going from city to city. Wow, I've been <laughs> dealing with that for years. It was it was one thing after another, and it just struck me, my goodness, you know, of course, people with ALS, they go through that existence every single day. It isn't COVID-19. Yeah. It isn't when is this going to be over with. The only difference between an ALS patient and all this complaining about coronavirus is that there's hope for an injection for uh, a vaccine for coronavirus, and we won't have to worry about it anymore. And right now, there is no cure around the corner for ALS. Right. Oh, just wait another year, year and a half. We've got Operation, what is Trump calling it? The warp speed, Operation Warp Speed. That was another thing that they brought up. Wow. $2 trillion in a stimulus package to deal with the effects of COVID-19. People getting paid so that they can stay at home uh, because they can't work. Where's my paycheck as an ALS patient for all these years that I can't work? Yeah, Hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars being put into finding some kind of cure. Where's the hundreds of billions of dollars going towards people trying to find a cure for ALS. So I can absolutely understand how an ALS patient looks at the world today and says, you must be kidding me. 
you know, yeah. uh, wow, wow, you have it so tough. You might have to stay inside for uh, the better part of a year. And meanwhile, you're getting supplemental pay and supplemental unemployment and the promise of a dedication of a government to doing everything they can and finding a vaccine. If it's not your government, another, another government will find it and we'll all share it. Wow, wouldn't that be great? And it, it must be so bitter. And, and I, I, I don't, I, I'm amazed that people who have ALS and other debilitating diseases don't get beyond cynical about how upset all of oh. us are at the limits that we have. I, I think that every day when I hear somebody saying, you know, I see protesters with signs literally saying, you know, I want to get my hair done. I want yeah. to get my nails done. I mean, that that kills me to the core when you think of so many people who are unable to leave their houses every day naturally and normally. And it just seems so petty in the bigger picture of what we're going through today, you know, and um, it really we need to reevaluate what's important in life, <laughs> I think. Oh, no um, question. Probably need to do that every day. But there's a topic that uh, we will definitely cover in more detail, uh, you know, on a special show just dedicated to ALS and, and maybe talk to some people about where we are in that process. I, I want to salute the people who are battling ALS every day, um, guys like my friend Augie Nieto, who's just an inspiration. Augie was, uh, came to me through Tuesdays with Maury. I mean, so many people have come to me through Tuesdays with Maury. His, someone in his family uh, knew somebody I knew and wanted to get a book signed for him. And they said, oh, there's this guy who was out in California. He said, this guy he has ALS and um, he was hoping maybe he'd get a book signed. I said, well, where does he live? And they said, well, it's not too far away, about three, four miles. I said, well, why don't I just drop it off and say hello? And I went and I was so impressed with this man who at the time was struggling in the earlier stages of ALS. Since then, he's you know full born into it. This was many years ago already. And he was the guy who started Life Cycle, uh, if you know oh. that, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, ended up becoming a very, very rich man uh, selling you know, exercise equipment like Life Cycles and things like that. And then when he was 47, 48 years old, prime of his life, good looking, beautiful wife, kids and everything, he uh, went water skiing on a trip in uh, Vietnam and kept falling down while he was water skiing and was having trouble shaving the most exotic kind of vacation that you could imagine and right. came back and found out that he had ALS and oh. his, his initial reaction was to try to kill himself with pills. And, uh, he remembered being in the hospital, uh, you know, uh, semi-conscious and hearing doctors and his family talking about whether he would live or not and realized in that moment he had done something terrible he had almost given away uh, the most precious gift we have, which is his life. And he vowed then if he, would, every, if he came back that he would have a different attitude. And boy, did he have a different attitude. Not only did he embrace living, even though he was limited in everything, and Augie can't move hardly anything, except he, he types with a, a toe on a, you know, a, a keyboard and blinks right. his eye and things like that. Um, but he has raised countless millions of dollars by starting a, a fund to battle ALS and a company to basically operate like the businesses that he always operated, only their only purpose is to find a cure for ALS. 
They are like a mini version of what the government's trying to do with COVID-19. And here's someone who has ALS himself and may never benefit from the whatever drug they they find, but spends every day running a business from his wheelchair. And it is a multi-million dollar business with researchers and all the rest of it. People like Augie, and he's just one, are incredible. And ALS, as terrible an affliction as it is, often brings out an incredible sides of people, resilience and and wisdom and insight that even they didn't know they had. And Aukie would be the first person to tell you he wasn't that nice a guy before he got ALS. He was kind of like, you know, what's in it for me? I'm going to be business, you know, big cigar smoking, you know, uh, let's just go have fun and spend money and and live high off the hog. And and so, uh, you know, and Maury would always say that he became the best version of himself as a result of his ALS. So- You know, not that anybody wishes that on anyone, and it's an, it's not that way for everybody, for sure. But uh, we'll do a whole show on that. But you're right, uh, Brian, still no cure. Uh, small, small steps, small little developments happening, but still no cure. And, um, you know, we can only hope that maybe, maybe some of these efforts, it sure would be nice to see one day if we just, you know, we're just going to just going to send $500 billion towards this thing and see if we can fix it. Uh, yeah. That would be something instead of uh, coronavirus. Anyhow, thank you, Brian, for that. That was really good. Uh, a listener named Mike sent in a note saying, Mitch played a clip of Maury talking about what happens when you have evil, selfish leaders. Considering the political divides we live in today and all the divisive, toxic rhetoric we have now, if Mitch could share and you two could discuss anything he and Maury might have discussed about navigating and making sense of political chaos, that would be great, especially in a mentally healthy way, and possibly how not to engage. So this is a great question. Another topic that we really, as election season comes around, we're probably going to want to do a show on how to mentally survive an election. So Maury's Maury's take on this was interesting. First of all, Maury was not political in, 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 you know, that he spent a lot of time campaigning for people, but he was certainly political in his views. And I've played a lot of things. He was very concerned about leaders being interested only in money, being interested only in getting reelected again. He didn't trust a lot of political leaders. He didn't trust big corporate business. Um, he felt that, uh, you know, there was a point at which people had enough and, and yet we we never act like that. We just act more, 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 more. And one of the ways that he dealt with this was he would form discussion groups. And I remember so vividly, uh, I would say to him, well, how do you deal with uh, some of the things? He said, well, we have these discussion groups. I said, what do you mean? Well, uh, we I have a group now, how to deal with the nuclear threat. I said, that's a discussion group? Yes. I said, okay. well what do you do? He said, well, we meet, you know, once a week and we talk about how to deal with the nuclear threat. So I said, well, like who's in this like a neurophysicist? And he said, no, the guy down the street and this guy's a painter and this guy, uh, he's a sanitation worker and this guy, I don't know, I I could be misremembering their jobs, but it was kind of like that. And I said, that's your group? He said, yeah. He said, how many? It's like six people. I said, well, have you solved the nuclear threat? And he said, no, but we talk about it and we make each other feel better because we have one another to to say, it's not just me 
feeling this way. Mm-hmm. And we share our fears and we share our discussions. And then we have a little nosh and, <laughs> and we go home. Right. And I think that that is something that has been lost in the noise and the rhetoric. Everybody wants to scream. Everybody wants to go on Twitter and make a snide comment. Everybody wants to make a post on Facebook and then respond to that post on Facebook. But the simple act of just getting together with people and having a discussion about issues that are going on today with the purpose of having a discussion about issues going on today, not let's get together for dinner and and then the conversation veers towards something political and then half the table goes, are we talking about this now? Why are we talking about this? Stop. I don't want to hear this anymore. We're here for dinner. We should be. No, get together with the purpose of talking about it. So you're not saying, well, I don't want to bring this up. I don't want to ruin the dinner by bringing up my thought on this and talk it out. Talk it out with like-minded people or maybe even some not so like-minded people, but talk it out on a small level. Everybody wants to solve it on a global level. Everybody wants to watch somebody doing a CNN or Fox News report, then comment on the Fox News report, and then comment on the people who are commenting on the Fox News report or whatever. Those are, those are macro levels of things that we're never going to really affect. But you can affect your own neighborhood or your, your own small group, and you can feel better about it because say, you know, last night we had an interesting discussion with four or five, six of us, and not last night I posted this thing on Twitter, and then six, 600 people I don't know posted back, and I, I posted something back, and 500 more people I don't know told me I was a jerk. And What good is that? Bring it closer no. to home. Well, and it's not good for your heart or your soul either. And sometimes I think if you invite people into your life for a discussion that do have differing opinions of you, maybe the anger and the fear and everything else that you feel will dissipate a little bit if you can talk things out to see why they feel the way they feel about certain things, you know? I, I, I just try to avoid it. I really try to avoid TV these days um, unless it's, you know something like Super Soul Sunday. Um, you know, mm. I don't, um, I, I, I'm, I'm done watching news shows. I really try not to engage online. Occasionally, I, I do have to say, I, I will jump in the fray. But I, I consciously every day try to post more puppy posts than, than, um, yeah. than political things. Because it does, yeah. you're right, it doesn't do any good. And all it does mm. is rile people up. No. So. There's a few things less satisfying than thinking, I'm going to post something and feel better about it, and then the feeling that you actually get uh, when you see people's reactions to it or after the anger passes and you say, oh, why did I put that up there? And now it's there forever. Better to form a small group, how to deal with the nuclear threat, (laughs) and and, uh, invite the guy down the street and see if that's not a, a way to handle it. So, Mike, that's a small suggestion. Again, another topic for a good show in the future but thank you for coming in with that and uh, asking that question. We'll do one more here. And this is a, uh, or a listener who didn't want their name necessarily associated with it, but I think it's an important topic. Um, and the person writes, it's about the weight of expectation from others. And then even when you fulfill the expectation, the feeling of nothing ever being good enough. For me, it specifically rates back to my parents. I really try and go above and beyond for them, but I get little side comments as if it's unnecessary or unwanted when maybe it was something they said they were struggling with a while back and I try and help. Even as I hit almost 40 and being married, I still seem to seek approval from my parents. So when I spend time doing something for them to make their lives easier, it's brushed aside. It really takes a toll on my overall well-being and impacts other aspects of my life, feeling I'm not being good enough 
how I see myself in mm-hmm. work, et cetera, et cetera. That's this, hard. Yeah, this too is a big topic and way bigger than just making it part of a show, but it's an important one. And Maury uh, told an interesting story about when he was younger, and you've heard me talk, we did the Mother's Day show, about how his mother was very sick when he was young and she died when he was eight years old and how he had to read the telegram informing his family that she had died in a hospital because his father didn't read English. And so he had to read it out loud to him. And that's how Maury learned that his mother was dead. And the and he had a very distant father who didn't really want to talk to him. And he was always felt that he was unworthy and had to go an extra mile just to try to earn anyone's attention. And he said that he found that he would go around and he would try to smile all the time. And he didn't realize that he was smiling uh, to sort of compensate for feeling inadequate. And one day he was with a friend and he either overheard or, or, or heard the friend's parents or father say, I don't want that kid around. He really annoys me, talking about Maury. And he found out that the reason that he annoyed him was that he's always smiling. And he, <laughs> he, he thinks he's better than everybody. He's got the smirk on his face and is always smiling. And, and Maury looked at that and said, you know, here I was as a child smiling because I felt so inadequate that I thought I had to make everybody happy. And here's this guy saying, I don't want to see this kid. He's he's got a smirk on his face. Who does he think he is? Smiling all the time like that. Terrible. Yeah. And so even compensation can be misconstrued. So what we'll talk about when we deal with this as a full topic is that if you're living for other people's approval, you will never be satisfied and you will never be content. It's not going to happen. And that includes your parents. And there's a point at which you can always love your parents and always be there for your parents, but you have to accept that they may have a set of standards by which you're never going to measure up and you're always going to feel inadequate. And until you set up your own standards for your own life, uh, you are doomed to walk in that circle. And there have been many parents who like to kids to keep their kids in that circle. Mel Brooks right. is a 2,000-year-old man, the very famous routine that he did with Carl Reiner. And he said uh, he, he played a man who was 2,000 years old. And Carl Reiner says to him, you know, well, what were your parents like 2,000 years ago? And he says, my parents were Jewish, <laughs> like that, which yeah. means, and he would say, and he said, well, what does that mean? He says, all Jewish parents are the same. And then he goes into this whole thing where he basically says, David, come, we lived in the caves, and they would come and stand outside the front of the cave. Ma, pa, come inside. No, no, it's all right. We just want to look at you. you know? Ma, pa, come inside. It's raining. Nah, they're fine. We're here. We're just fine. We're fine outside. Ma, pa, come in. Have something. Nah, we ate on the dinosaur coming over. You know, like there was always, they just never satisfied. You know, they always wanted to make you feel like you weren't doing enough for them, you know. And, you know, while it was a joke, and we're not, you know, I'm Jewish. I'm allowed to say these things. It's, uh, you know, nobody's disparaging Jewish parents. But what he was saying is, you know, some things are universal. And and one of the universalities of parents is that it frequently you don't feel good enough for them uh, as children. And we don't satisfy them. And that, you know, so uh, 
it's something you have to get past, uh, and we'll talk about it in some future shows. So I want to thank uh, the reader for the the listener for that, and uh, and all the other wonderful people who have written in. And we really want to thank you for these thirty shows. It's as podcasting goes, it may not be a long time. I know there are some podcasts that are up to their thousandth podcast and all that, but for us, right. we're we're very proud to have uh, made it this far. It's uh, more than half a year, and it's a nice round number. And um, we hope that you're enjoying this podcast and enjoy these lessons. And please keep these comments and, and, and notes to us uh, coming through all forms of social media. And we they provide great fodder for us to uh, come up with show ideas and even be part of the actual show. So, yep. Lisa, happy 30th. And uh, happy 30th to you too, Mitch. Yeah. Should we have bought uh, like purchased something for each other? Uh, uh, we don't, we have to know, hold like... it up on the, on the Skype thing because we <laughs> can't actually see each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A big uh, three, 30 pieces of candy. That might be nice. <laughs> I could go over that right now. Yeah. And we'll uh, head on to, uh, we'll do one at oh. 52 also. Coincidentally, that's so weird. I just thought about that because I thought of candy and I'm on Weight Watchers. Yesterday, I hit 30 pounds on weight loss. How weird is wow. that? Wow. Congratulations I to lost you. You're going to have 30 Thank pounds you. to lose, Lisa. Oh, I got I still have topic for another I still show. have 12 more to go. 12 more to go. But um well, congratulations yeah, but 30 for pounds that. on my 30th week. I think I should play some sort of lottery this week. Yeah. There I just you go. realized that. Funny. Congratulations <laughs> to you. Um Thank you. We'll see you, folks, uh, next Tuesday. Uh, Try to stay safe. Try to stay sane. And uh, we'll be back with another edition of Tuesday People in a Week. This is Mitch Album on behalf of Lisa Goyd saying, have a good, safe, human week. Thank you for listening to Tuesday People. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday people.